Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Ashley Chinati, reporter and web producer with the National Post. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> this is Canada Land Shortcuts. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Mark Tomblin, Karen Lanauskas, Jeff Halam, Virgil Vassallo, Paul Sanborn, Spencer Lindsay, Greg Johnston, Steph, and Bobo Eric. Bobo, why did you decide to be awesome? Because Canada always needs more informed political discussion, and uh, you guys bring it to us. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks.com. Ashley, have you ever had to use accounting software, billing software of any kind? Unfortunately, no. Maybe I'm missing out on something. It's because you have a real job. The rest of us uh, who are freelancers or entrepreneurs, small business people, need to have some kind of way of billing people. Some people just use like a spreadsheet or a Microsoft Word document. There is a better way of doing this. It's called FreshBooks.com, painless billing, cloud accounting. Track your time if you bill by the hour. Track your expenses easily with our mobile app. And neat little features... Like you can see when people actually open your invoice, you get paid quicker. I find that I save time and get paid a lot quicker when I use FreshBooks. And if you use FreshBooks now, you get 30 days for free. Tell them who sent you when you do sign up. And I think you will. You'll be doing the show a favor. FreshBooks.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day 
outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Well, the two new hires are labeled as special assistants to the Prime Minister's residence, and these two women are looking after the Trudeau children. According to the government, they would be paid between $15 and $20 per hour, $11 to $13 if they're working the night shift. Now, one of the women has also been posting on social media uh, checking in at some of the hotels that the Trudeau family is staying at, posting pictures of the children. So we did ask the Liberals about all of this, about any security concerns it might raise. Ashley, Trudeau's nannies, story or not a story? I think it's a story. Of course it's a story. Every time you publish any story, there will be people who say, that's not a story. But a lot of the people saying it this time were journalists. I saw, I saw, did you see some of these responses? I I did. And I thought it was interesting because the story kind of evolved as the day went on, because I think some people saw it initially in the morning, especially people who have young kids and were like, well, of course, they're going to need childcare help. And then as people sort of thought about it and debated it on social media, people started thinking about the fact that, wait a second, during the election campaign, Justin Trudeau made this big show of I'm going to donate my universal child care benefit check. I don't need help. People who like me who make this much money don't need help with child care. We're going to help other people. And then he gets elected, turns around and accepts a whole ton of taxpayer help to pay for his nannies. So I think that's really what makes it a story. Yes. It's not a question of should the Trudeaus have a nanny or not. It's not even a question, I think, as to whether or not the public should pay for it. That's sort of the second question. Then we can have that debate about whether everybody else might want to have childcare supported by the government, which was a, a campaign issue. But this guy himself said that rich guys like me should not be getting money from government for this, and I'm going to give the $3,400 back. And then what is this going to cost, $60,000 a year? There is a hypocrisy issue here. Of course it's a news story. And yet the Globe and Mail was kind of like, well, it's sort of a story, but we find it petty. Matt Galloway was tweeting, you know, how is this different from having a cook or a driver? Kind of like shooing it away. Heather Malik, always the voice of reason, <laughs> She she said to people who are upset about this, get back to your basements. To the public, this was a story. So then you've got these like people in the media saying, calm down. Oh, yeah, Chatelaine was saying, oh, this is – don't be babies. Don't be babies, everybody. This isn't a story. That is a very strange thing, I think, for the media to be telling to – saying to the public, you know, calm down. It's it's no big deal. Or I think focusing on this aspect of like, oh, this is, this is sexist because you're suggesting the prime minister's wife should be – who said that? Who said no one said that? That's a really interesting angle that's come out of it is people have sort of inserted a bunch of narrative onto this. So it's become a debate about a child care debate. Like, what are we actually talking about when we talk about the prime minister and child care? I mean, if we had our first elected female prime minister, would we question nannies? And I think that that's a sort of interesting thing to sort of 
explore because I do think that there are a couple different issues here. One, of course, it's a story because this is a prime minister who ran saying, I don't need help with childcare. He gets elected, hires two nannies on the public dime. Then you have the issue of when we talk about political leaders and childcare, do we have different expectations when those political leaders are men? And that's particularly interesting given the Trudeau family history that his dad was essentially raising he and his brothers as a single parent when he was prime minister. So clearly there were nannies involved then. So there's a lot of layers there, but I really take a lot of issue with childcare advocates trying to take this story and turn it into a case that, well, the prime minister having nannies will make it more acceptable for everyone to have childcare. It's like, no, the prime minister having nannies is talking about a very specific elite kind of childcare. And the real childcare discussion we need to have is about how women who are barely making enough money to support their families can afford to have childcare and go back to work. There's a lot of people in my age group I know who are going back to work and barely making enough to cover their childcare. And they basically are just working to keep a job till the kids go to school and they don't have to pay for childcare anymore. And that's not the situation with the prime minister at all. Yeah, I agree. I, I, it's, it feels like a complete diversion to turn this into that old like mommy war debate about stay home. It's not about that. I think it's accepted that most families uh, are going to need some child kind of childcare. And I thought we got to a level in the last election where we were actually talking about should we have $15 a day or should it be a subsidy? What should it be? And instead, it's like, oh, the elites and their nannies. No, everybody. This is an issue for everybody. I do feel like the first few times when the honeymoon has been broached by the press where people have asked these uncomfortable questions of the Trudeaus, there be, there's been this kind of like, leave Britney alone kind of <laughs> response from people. Like, we love him. Shut up. Like, I'm sorry. No, that's our job. We're not going to leave Britney alone. Well, and let's be realistic here. What, what was the popular vote for the Liberals? 35 verging on 36 percent. So there's a whole chunk of the country who didn't vote for Justin Trudeau. And I'm sure they definitely think that this is a story. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be said, like, People point to, uh, and I know it's a very different job, but Harper's hairdresser uh, or helmet stylist, that was paid for by the Conservative Party, not by— And that's the key point, the party, yeah. not the taxpayer. Look, I'm not like, I'm a taxpayer and I want that money back. That's not the issue here. There, it, it's about what you campaigned on versus what you're doing. But more than that, it's about, well, what about the rest of us? So this decision to, to shut down all comment on anything relating to Indigenous peoples, who made that decision? That was a decision that came out of a working group made up of some Indigenous and non-Indigenous staff. And this is, as I said, unprecedented. I mean, it's not uncommon to have to shut down commentary on a particularly inflammatory story or one particular issue, but to have to close down commentary on an entire category. So that was the CBC talking about why they have closed the comment section on any story having to do with First Nations Canadians. So I totally understand why they made this decision. Uh, Comment sections attract some of the worst forms of humanity. I have a a really interesting experience with this uh, last winter when that little boy Eli went missing. The the little black boy wandered outside. Yeah, awful story. Awful story. story And And so I was working on our our web version of that story and didn't turn off the comments because stuff was so fluid and, and, and people were finding it. So I was updating the story pretty regularly. And at one point scrolled down and realized that very quickly our comment section had descended into some of the most hateful racist garbage you have ever seen. Blaming the parents and... 
everything. Yeah. And I immediately turned off the comments and realized that maybe I should have from the beginning. But usually with a missing child, that's not necessary. But I think anytime race comes into play with a news story, there's that it's sort of like a like a siren call for the worst corners of the Internet to come out and spew their hate. So I totally understand why CBC did this. And I don't think anyone has a right to a platform to spew their hate. No, I agree. And I, I kind of think that uh, the conversation is not necessarily CBC good or bad, decision right or wrong. My take on this was just like, oh, damn, like what went into that decision? They reached a point where anytime they mentioned First Nation Canadians in any context, the comment section would get filled with racist idiots. We can't even talk about First Nation Canadians at all without those people taking over and, and, and spewing hate speech. That's awful. And I mean, there's a lot of context for this. Canada Land does not have a comment section. And there, there are multiple reasons for that. One, one thing that people I think don't necessarily know is that in Canada, a website has a higher level of responsibility for what people put in the comment section than in the United States. You're, you're somewhat free of liability, uh, depending on what the speech is in the States. It's, it's a lot more open to just say, hey, I didn't say that. I just created a comment section. Here, we actually have to moderate it, and we, and we don't have the resources to go through it the way that the CBC does. So we just made the decision, well, between Facebook, Twitter, and our Patreon page, there's lots of places an email. We will talk with our, our audience, and they can talk with each other, and that, and that conversation happens every day. The CBC is the public broadcaster. They've made the decision that they want to have comment sections. I think that's the right decision in a general sense for the CBC. Public conversations about the news, yes, the CBC should be in that business. And isn't it just tragic and disgusting that we have to exclude indigenous Canadians from having that kind of forum because the level of racism in this country is so epidemic that you like, I mean, I don't know. There's, you, you could also maybe question, maybe it's a reflection of the coverage. Maybe the coverage is often negative of First Nation Canadians and that elicits that sort of response. I don't know. It's not just negative stories, though. You can have a positive story about, you know, this. I've seen this in our comment section. It can be a positive story about a young Indigenous leader doing something great or even about the fact that the new Minister of Justice is an Indigenous woman. And you'll still get some of that trickling in. And we've switched to Facebook comments. And people will still, even with that, say some pretty horrible things. Because on Facebook, it's linked to their real name. So it sort of cleans up people's act a little bit. But not necessarily as much as you'd want it to, which is really, really upsetting. And I think, as you said, emblematic of how deep-rooted a lot of racism still is in this country, particularly towards our Indigenous communities. Deep-rooted. And people are just kind of like... I'm thinking about it like they'll just say stuff about indigenous Canadians that they would never say about other groups. Like it's just, you know, covering uh, some of these topics recently, references to drug and alcohol use, references to like, you know, oh, money grub. Like it's incredible the stereotypes and cliches that people just throw around. And I think that those people would not consider themselves racist. No. And the victim blaming for missing, murdered indigenous women. A lot of people sort of do this weird sort of backhanded victim blaming where they'll be like, well, there's all these issues within their communities and they need to look at those and why these women are going to sex work and we don't need an inquiry. They need to to fix themselves. Uh, like it's, first it's of all, it's bullshit. Of all. Yeah, it's definitely, I'm not agreeing <laughs> no, with no, them. I know, I know. I, it's just, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm getting angry at them. And yeah. I mean, so first of all that, which was, was what the Harper government was peddling, was like, oh, this is all First Nation on First Nation crime. 
Okay, even if that's true, so then do you not care? Second of all, no, that's as the Globe and Mail series recently exposed. No, actually, they're so much more likely to be victims of serial killers. It's shameful in this country. The different standards of life, of education, and then the level of racism that they have to endure. That's the one thing that I'm afraid of when we just shut down the conversation in the comments. It's like, I think that there's a cost to not recognizing that level of racism. It'd be great if we could just have like a counter on a CBC story. We had to remove 400 disgusting racist comments from this story so that we all had to deal with the fact that this is a racist country when it comes to Indigenous Canadians. But then someone has to sit there and remove 400 comments. So what kind of human resources are you putting into just moderating a forum? And maybe on occasion... The CBC could have, you know, let's have a discussion about this Indigenous issue today and dedicate someone to deal with moderating that. But if on every story they post, they're looking at deleting and going through X number of comments and at an exponential level, I think that they reach a point, even as the public broadcaster, where they have to say, this is probably taking too much of our time just to remove things that are outright hate speech from our website. And with social media, people have so many ways that they can get out there and discuss these issues. And I think in a lot of cases, a lot of comment sections are a small number of people who go back and forth to fight with each other. And most people take news stories and go off and discuss them on Twitter, on Facebook, Oh yeah, it's not a censorship issue. There's like... If you want, there's, the, there's a whole internet out there if you want to talk about this stuff. But you know what? I wasn't going to weigh in and say CBC right or wrong. They made this decision with the participation of Indigenous Canadians. A lot of uh, First Nation groups are applauding them for it. And, I'm, and again, I'm not the person who has to suffer when that stuff is out there. So I'm not saying that they're wrong to do it. And I wasn't going to take a position on what they should do. I will say this. This shouldn't be the end of it. I know that they're saying they're trying to reform it and bring the comments back in some way or update their moderating. Even that seems insufficient to me. If stories are overrun with racism every time there's a story about First Nations Canadians, the CBC should somehow find a way to dig into that and have a conversation about that, engage the public, create some kind of, I don't know, there's just some way that just flipping the switch to off is not the solution to this. I think the fact that they went public with the decision to do that is already starting that conversation and an indication of of how deep the problem is and how much they've had to deal with this. Because I think in an informal way, a lot of newsrooms, you know, you automatically turn off comments on stories about crime, especially allegations before the courts, because as you discussed, the the liability for what people say in the comment section, right? But whenever I'm posting a story, if it's about certain issues, if it's about certain race issues, if it's about trans rights, if it's about indigenous issues, I usually will turn them off. I hear even, you. I, even with Facebook comments. Look, it's worth the price of the trolls to have a comment section. Comment sections are wonderful. Like, we pretend to be experts on new subjects every week in, in the media. You know, there are real experts out there who will help and, and evolve our stories. They will correct our mistakes. They'll correct our typos. They'll have conversations with each other. I find new leads to stories in comment sections. I will sing the praises of comment sections, and I think it's, it's worth the cost of the nasty speech. But I do think the comments are broken. You know, like the system is broke. When you have to go through a hundred shitty comments to get to one substantive comment, you know, there's got to be a better way. So I... I, I, What about the old-fashioned sort of letter system where people had to sit and think about what they were going to say and send it in. It doesn't mean that you're getting completely away with the comment section, but we could have more developed online letter systems. People actually have to sit and think about sending an email so someone can go through those sort of one by one. And it's not just the, I'm going to sit here and start a flame war with someone on this open page and show off for the world because that's that's what I want to spend <laughs> my afternoon doing. Back to Web 1.0. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, Yeah. <laughs> So, actually, in the wake of the Paris attacks, 
which of course came just a month after the Niqab debate during the uh, the campaign, there were several media reports about anti-Islamic violence and anti-Islamic incidents uh, in the public. And of course, the mosque that got set on fire uh, was maybe the worst of them. But there was this other one where uh, a bunch of teenagers apparently got into some kind of racist altercation against a couple of Muslim women riding uh, public transit here in Toronto. So we got one version of that story when it happened. We've just had another very different report when Sun News caught up with one of the teenagers who's alleged to have been a perpetrator of this incident. Here's what that sounded like. I was on going on to the subway and I got my shoe stepped on. So I looked back. The lady said, what? I kind of said, your breath stinks, which was really rude of me. We got in a confrontation because her other friend and they were saying we were behaving like monkeys. My friend took offense to that and he's like, excuse me, I have a Canadian citizenship. Don't call me a monkey. I can play music wherever I want. Was monkey supposed to be a, a derogatory term? Or? He's black. He, he's black, right. so he kind of took it to offense. I see. All I know that it's put me in a position where I can't go back to my school because people think that I'm a racist and that people think that I'm just not a good person and not a trustworthy person. These kids sound like the worst. I mean, they're sitting there with one of those like wireless speakers blaring music on the TTC train. And I think people let people get away, especially kids around that age with stuff like that on transit all the time. So I think for, for two women slightly older than them to determine and be like, guys, come on, turn it down. Like that's sort of how I'm hearing this. Cause every time I, I listen to or read this story, I'm like, you kids sound like you're the brattiest children. And these women were just trying to check you and be like, you're in a public place. You don't have a right to just blare your music on your little external speaker to your heart's content. And then they turned around and it, maybe it was racist on both sides. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. But it sounds like it, it things escalated quickly and perhaps a little unnecessarily because these kids didn't want to be told, you know, maybe you should be courteous to people around you. Wow. I had a very different response. <laughs> Obviously, they were acting like brats, but it wasn't even like these kids are the worst. I was just like, oh, he's a teenager, right? He's a teenager. That's going to happen. This kid who was characterized as – and then the TTC said this. There were cowards who ran away after this physical altercation. It was kind of murky. Like did he, did these kids hit? Was it violent against these, these women in their hijabs? You didn't know. You just got the sense that there were these bigots who started something. But what I took from this was that what happened is was maybe not that huge a deal – And because this plugged into a major national debate we were having, this kid can't go back to school. That doesn't seem okay. So I definitely feel sympathy for him because they did screw up in releasing the images of the kids when before we knew that they were young offenders and they were sort of taken taken down. That's sort of what I understand happened there. That's how people found out who he was before he went public with the son, right? Um, so I guess that's a question. And But the TTC did come out and call this a hate crime that was being investigated and, and put out this description of what happened. So I don't think it's necessarily 100% on the media here because I think it was an important story for people to talk about because there were other documented hate crimes against women wearing hijabs at the same time. Totally. And so the fact that an official government agency came out and said – 
this thing happened, of course that's going to become, you know, spiral out and become a news story. There was a conservative response and it was in the sun and people were like, see, you tried to make these kids fit into this narrative of anti-Islamic violence and it's just not true. These kids were the ones who were, you know, uh, the victims of racist. No, that, it, it's not one side or the other. The context for me here is that when you have the prime minister of the country campaigning on an anti-Muslim rhetoric, anti-Nakab, anti-religious, you you make it okay. Obviously, this kid who's mixed race himself and his friends black, they obviously think like, what are you talking about? I'm not a racist. When the state itself is making it okay to question who's really a Canadian, then I can understand why this kid would think himself not a racist to say, I'm from Canada to people wearing hijabs uh, that, because you've essentially endorsed as not racist, incredibly racist behavior. So I, I have no problem with the media flagging this as a, a possible repercussion of that conservative campaign. But it made me mindful of the people who get kind of tossed into the wreckage of a one-two trend media story. You know, there are human lives and some of them are minors or kids who like now he's got to go back to his life at a school where he's being the subject of national media attention as a racist anti-Islamic dude. And I think that that's always been the case with media. There's always been people who are sort of caught in the middle of big stories. Yeah. But with the social media age, it's amplified and it spreads further and faster and quicker. But I think you have a really good point that, you know, so much of this is happening because we had a state-sanctioned discussion of who's a Canadian based on what you wear in the federal government challenging a woman choosing to wear a niqab to a citizenship ceremony. So now we have a new government. They've pulled back on that. But the legacy of that is that we just had a federal election campaign where so much of it was focused on, you know, who is a Canadian, what what is a Canadian value, and that was all coded language for is this kind of of person, specifically Muslim people, the kind of person you want to be a Canadian. And that sort of not so subtle undertone yeah. to, to a good chunk of the campaign. But you're legitimizing then bled something into, there. Yeah, then bled into a yet another horrific attack on and the streets imagery. of Paris. If you and, create this imagery of like throwing yeah. in front of a camera a woman in a niqab on every news story, the stock photos, yeah. uh, Zunir Ishaq, again and again, these photos, these photos, it's okay, let, let's have a t- let's talk about this. Is she Canadian? Isn't she? And then women have to go and live their lives in society and they bear the brunt of it. So. And a lot of the pulling on that issue was really depressing. It, there's a lot of Canadians who don't don't like women who visibly wear either a hijab or a niqab. Yeah, well, that's why they kept button mashing that issue because they yeah. thought it was going to work, work, work. Yeah, and I guess it didn't. It didn't work with enough people. Uh, so that's probably a good thing. It says yeah. something nice about the country. I don't know. Even the people but, who I think are sympathetic to it were like, "Enough! Yeah. This is you're manipulating us." As much as we were talking about how deep-rooted indigenous racism is in Canada, I think we do have a really serious problem with Islamophobia. And I think we need to confront that. And I think that sometimes kids, out of the mouths of babes, you can get the the, tr- yeah. the truth, right? And clearly these kids have picked up, as you said, on that narrative. And now, and there's been people saying that even immediately after September 11th, they didn't feel as much nervousness as much open hatred as they do now after everything was ramped up and almost given legitimacy by political leaders echoing things that were pretty much about as close to overt racism as you can get on the campaign trail these days. Final thing I want to talk with you about, Ashley, is, uh, is a bunch of stories. Three puff pieces that appeared in three of the big papers, including yours, which I want to ask you to talk about. 
because that's not fair to you. But these are three puff pieces about three powerful people. One was uh, a Christia Freeland profile in the Toronto Star. One was an Amanda Lang profile in the Globe and Mail. And one was a John Furlong story in, in the National Post. So did you read the Freeland story in the Star? Mm-hmm. What'd you make of that? So I, I think it's interesting now, especially because she is a cabinet minister and she's a liberal cabinet minister. So that's sort of an extra layer in there. But it was so much of it was about her time at at Reuters. And we've heard mixed things about that over over the years and whether that sort of gives her enough enough cred to, to be international trade minister. The whole um, story was about how Trudeau had to woo her. And it took him like attempt after attempt to woo her as a journalist away from her elite job, her high profile job at Thomson Reuters, and that he finally was able to entice her to come and, and, and join his team. A very well-reported BuzzFeed story, all about Christia Freeland's time at Thomson Reuters, details how she spearheaded a $20 million digital Reuters effort, a project that was an unmitigated failure, that they never even launched. It was such a debacle. So the idea that she had to be wooed by Trudeau from this wonderful job. No, she came back to Canada with her tail between her legs. I mean, like this was a failure of it. I mean, what I, I, I don't know anything about her beyond this, but for the star to describe her as this like, re, like she had a really sweet thing going with Thomson Reuters. She did. She was high up there. But the circumstances of her joining the liberals, how do you leave that out of the story? Well, I think that I, either that reporter didn't didn't know or didn't do enough research into her actual time at Reuters and took a lot of info and background from the liberals and were like, oh, this is a great narrative. You know, she had to be wooed uh, or they chose to leave it out. And the weird thing about media, especially Canadian media, is there are people who leave jobs with tails between their legs. We see this on a really regular basis. And it's happened for a while. Like there's a lot of recent examples. And then all of a sudden, they're the head of some digital division somewhere and, you know, making even more money. And then, you know, the, the back running some other news or operation. Like there's a there's a, a, ten, a trend of falling upwards in Canadian media. Once failing you up. Hit, yeah, failing upwards. <laughs> failing what, up. Yeah, and what, it's always digital too. It's like, it's, yeah. why do we let like like losers run? Like that's the yeah. future. You actually have to know something to, run, to, to, you, to build a digital. You hit a point of success in media and then you can't fail, I guess. Like you become too know. big to fail. I don't, I don't understand that I never have. Too big to fail. Amanda Lang in the Globe and Mail. Uh, <laughs> this profile of Amanda Lang. You read that one? I did. You did. So... I mean, this one is just not true. Like, uh, for some reason, it's this wonderful profile of like, oh, she's just chosen to make this move to Bloomberg. That CBC stuff that that happened, the conflict of interest stuff, you know, that's not why, which is just not true if you know anything about what happened inside. But specifically in the Globe and Mail, the quote is, an internal CBC investigation found her conduct adhered to the network standards. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Esther Enkin, the CBC ombudsperson, explicitly found that Amanda Lang was in conflict of the CBC's conflict of interest, in violation. She was in violation. You can't just say that the, the opposite thing was found. Well, I think that there are a couple things going on there with that RBC story, though, because I, I really do resent when we talk too much about what people's partners do for a living, unless you have a direct correlation of her interfering in a story. Because I think we tend to do that a lot more with women than we do with men. And I think that there are a lot of reporters 
who cover politics, who cover business, who have life partners that maybe they left in the maybe they met in the industry and that person moved on to communications or maybe they met, you know, through industry events in the beat that they cover. And there's a lot of that. Canada is not a big country. Like there's a lot of that. And I find that we tend to raise more questions about female reporters being influenced by their partners than we do with male reporters being influenced by their partners. Yeah, fair point. I mean, we can have the conversation again about whether or not the conflict of interest was real or whether or not our media coverage of that was warranted. The CBC itself found that she was in violation once again. And uh, to your question, is there an instance of her actually interfering in a story? Yes, we did find that she hands-on interfered with her colleague's investigation of yeah, RBC. Yeah, and that's sort of why I wanted to make it a broader point, <laughs> yeah. because I do think that that's sort of something that, it's you know, a, you can't help what, what your what your significant other does for a living, and I think there yeah. are a lot of people who navigate sort of a firewall there, and I don't think someone should give up their reporting career if their husband or wife takes, like, a job with a politician or something. No, I think as long as your audience knows what the score is, mm-hmm. as long as you disclose everything, you recuse yourself if you think you need to, and otherwise, at a minimum, you tell your audience, I don't know, again and again with that, and yet, however you want to describe it, the truth was not reflected in this piece with Amanda Lang. And finally, I'll summarize the John Furlong story in the National Post, uh, which essentially, I mean, it was incredible. The original headline was all about John Furlong's, uh, and of course, uh, Candleland listeners will remember John Furlong, uh, who headed the Vancouver Olympics, is, uh, remains accused by many, many indigenous Canadians of abusing them when they were children during a part of his life that he uh, did not disclose in his memoir. He came to Canada five years before he said he was in Canada taught at a missionary school, and many of the students uh, in his charge there say that he abused them. He is now rehabilitating his public image. He's uh, marketing himself as a crisis management expert, as uh, the undefeatable John Furlong. And uh, the same day that he had his comeback speech to the Vancouver Board of Trade, the National Post ran a glowing profile, an interview with him where none of the accusers were interviewed by Cam Cole. And the headline to the piece was, it referenced false allegations. Well, that headline has since been changed. And a correction has been issued. A previous version of this story suggested all allegations against John Furling have been tested by the courts. They have not. So it's nice to see the National Post uh, walking back that story, though there's still problems within the story. And I'd love to see them speak to the accusers. I will generalize here, Ashley, and not dwell on the, on the, on the, the specific one to your paper. Why? I'm asking this genuinely. Three papers... Three people, elite Canadians by any measure, Amanda Lang, Christia Freeland, John Furlong, elite. Furlong's got the Order of Canada. Elite Canadians who are rebranding themselves, who need the public to feel differently about them. Amanda Lang needs to get over her conflict of interest scandal. Christia Freeland is trying to rebrand herself from a journalist to a minister. And then Furlong, of course, needs to rehabilitate his image after this uh, ongoing scandal, in the midst of this ongoing scandal. Why, I ask you, as a newspaper person, why do our newspapers help these people? Because I don't think that, that there's some secret room where, where they actually can call up the editor-in-chief and say, hey, help me out here. We're both elites. That's not how it happens. How does it happen and why does it happen? Why are we comforting the comfortable? And I, I think that's always so fascinating is people think think that that's what happens, that there's some conversation, you know, calling up editors and assigning things. And I think a lot of the time it's just a, an interesting 
profile that fit, that's timely at the moment. And then maybe someone gets a little bit too close to their subject or maybe they get uh, they don't step back enough and look for sort of the other angle or what they'll call the fly in the ointment and feature writing classes, like sort of the, the nugget of bad news in there. Or they buy a certain interpretation of facts if we're going to talk about, say, the Lang profile. Um, there's a lot of people who would agree with the way that she's profiled in that as opposed to your interpretation of it, even if you might not see that the facts line up that way. With with the Freeland one, I think that it's really easy to get picked to pick up on a good political narrative that f- suits the time. So the idea of this this new golden boy prime minister really had to court this journalist. Like there's something attractive about that narrative, right? And so I the think— The headline was uh, how Christia Freeland became Justin Trudeau's first star. Like that's that's kind of weird. Like is she his first star? I mean Mark Garneau was, ran against him for the leadership. He had Andrew Leslie there. Like was she—I guess was she his just, first big star he recruited? Star. I guess if we go back in time when he recruited her for the by-election— but, like, what have we seen from her since then? Like, I, I think it'll be interesting to see whether she actually turns out to be a star because I think great reporters don't necessarily make great politicians. But I think profile writing is a really, really hard thing to do really, really well. And I think especially if you spend a lot of time with a subject in general, not in relation to these three specific issues, it can become tough to sort of have that critical eye in the end. And you can almost want to, you become, I think it's human nature to become sympathetic to someone you spend a lot of time Especially when with you're talking on. about like um, charismatic, extroverted people yeah. who are on the public stage. You know, you hang out with them, you can get seduced and you can start to like your subject. And people have a way of making journalists feel special. I'm going to tell you something I never told anybody else. And yeah. That's why you pick up the phone and call somebody else who has a different opinion of that person. And I think maybe that has something to do with uh, news and resources. I don't want to cast a pall on any of these three writers and say they didn't put the time. And I don't know how many hours and what calls they did or didn't make and what material they didn't choose, they chose or chose not to include. But I think sometimes when we don't have a ton of time to keep hammering at the same story, like there's this idea of of feeding the beast. And that's always been part of newspapers you know, we used to have two editions a day decades and decades ago. But I think these days it's even fewer people doing it and there's a sense of you need even more. So maybe maybe that contributes to how puff pieces happen. Yeah, it's a factor. Um, there's something else going on. There's something else going on with with they're getting fed spin be it by liberal PR or, uh, you know. Yeah, people, that's, that's what, if you're really good at spin, if you're elite, if you have really good people working for you, it's easy to, to get someone to sort of buy a line. It definitely is. Yeah. Ashley, thank you. Anytime. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Ashley, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Ashley Chinati, uh, but I guess my last name's weird to spell, so it's C-S-A-N-A-D-Y, or uh, email, same thing at Gmail. Our website is canadalandshow.com. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter, Not Sorry, right there. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen, the next episode of Canada Land will be up on Monday. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. If you like this show, please support it. 